and welcome to WChat episode 6. Today we're really excited to talk to Dr. Chantel Wonderville all about health insurance, specifically what it would mean to have a single payer insurance system. But before we get started, I just kind of want to do a little plug for our podcast and we are really because we're starting out, we're really looking for feedback and ratings on iTunes. So if you're listening to us on iTunes, please let us know how we're doing. If you have any comments or if you have any questions. Also, if you want to be part of the podcast or if you have suggestions as far as what you'd like us to talk about. And then the other part I wanted to discuss about was our Patreon page. Stephanie and I are actually doing this right now out of our own pockets. And although it is free for you, it is unfortunately not free for us. And so we would love if you like the content we're giving you and what we're talking about and you want to keep the show going, we would love for you to head over to our Patreon page, uh, which we do talk about at the end of the podcast, which is www.patreon.com slash WCH. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can get our show notes for free. We make them into a really nice PDF. You can also get our clinical bonus and guidelines on how to improve your communication with women. And of course, our unwavering support. So that's our little plug. Why don't we get started? Stephanie, start us off. Yeah. So thank you, Nicole. Great plug. So at the beginning of our podcast, we ask our guest, you, Dr. Lunderville, if you could give our listeners just a little bit of background about who we're speaking with. So a little bit about yourself, your background, your education and training, and your current practice setting, like where you practice and what type of patients that you serve. Great. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you for having me on. I am a third-year family medicine resident, a physician at a safety net hospital in San Francisco. So safety net meaning we serve anyone who comes in the door regardless of ability to pay. And so we actually service the San Francisco area and northern San Mateo County. So that's about 1.5 million patients. And given that it is a safety net hospital, historically, we serve the most vulnerable and marginalized families in the area. And so I first came to medicine actually through the lens of how do I really take care of vulnerable families? Where I grew up in the Inland Empire in Southern California, I was exposed to families of lots of different means and incomes and racial backgrounds. And from an early age, I really started to ask the questions of what kind of makes one family a lot more wealthy or have more opportunity and essentially privilege and what creates health out of that? And so when I went into undergrad at UC San Diego, I majored in ethnic studies. And that's kind of a a bent on sociology where you look at the making of the world through history and policy, but specifically through the lens of sex and race and immigration. And so I was able to use that training when I went to medical school at UCLA and kind of look at health through a social lens and how health is able to help us achieve or to not achieve what we want. And so with this kind of, I was drawn to medicine, but also what medicine means in society and health disparities and kind of this whole realm. I also did a master's in public policy at the Luskin School of Public Policy at UCLA, and I focused on food policy there. And so now that I'm a resident at 
UCSF at the San Francisco General Hospital, I'm really kind of able to merge the two in my advocacy work around insurance and really with my advocacy work and the one-on-one level that I have with my patients as well. And so I also have a particular passion for women's health and adolescent care. And so this upcoming year, I will be starting my fellowship in family planning at UCSF. And so I'll focus on research related to insurance around reproductive health, abortion, and family planning. That's awesome. You had, sounds like you have a really well-rounded advocacy lens. And that you probably hit on our next question that we always like to ask our guests. But just if you have anything else to add about what informs your perspective or your practice, like what's most valuable to you and what's your philosophy of practice? Yes, I think it's such a great question. I really come from the angle when I meet new patients, when I interface with my existing patients, that I really believe medicine is a human right. And I don't believe that there's a reason that one person should get better care than the next person just because they have more money or have a certain background. And because I really see health as the driver of how we how we engage with life, I really try to figure out where my patient is on their life's trajectory and how to help them get to the next level. So and I think this is especially pertinent when we talk about vulnerable populations, because each one of us is one step away from being vulnerable. I mean, I have a pair of friends who were recently injured in a car accident, and they're on the risk of losing their jobs and going into debt. And these are young professionals with large support systems. So I really just try to look at each person as, you know, what are the things that make you vulnerable or potentially vulnerable? And how can I help you achieve your next life goal? And then on the other hand, with women and adolescents, where my unique passion lies, is really coming from an angle of destigmatizing shame and normalizing women's experiences. So this is really personal for me because as a young female, I always felt very shamed and very judged for a lot of decisions I made and even just asking questions about sex or orgasms. And so for me, becoming a physician, I'm, I'm part Latina. And to be a Latina physician in primary care who can sit down and look at my patient and be present with them and say, you have questions about orgasms, let's talk. Or you aren't sure if you want to continue this pregnancy, let's talk. And really meeting my patients where they are and coming at it from an angle of normalizing, like I said, their experiences. And this is a break from kind of how we're traditionally taught in medical school to look at patients in a strictly biomedical model and look at their risk stratification. So we're taught to see a patient when they come in and we have a laundry list of questions we ask them. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Any uh, interpersonal violence? And I think when we focus on risks, we are missing all of those rich experiences that shape our patients' lives and letting them be seen and letting them be heard. And we miss out on What's their relationship like? Are they in love? Are they achieving orgasms? Are they able to express their needs in their relationships? And I think that coming from this perspective, in addition to screening them for risks and making sure they're safe and protecting themselves, but also keeping a holistic sense of, of where she's coming from and how she sees herself and her life decisions. So I really try to come from that perspective. And I think a lot of my work has been informed by understanding various health systems. In the Netherlands, as opposed to in the U.S., teenagers in the Netherlands have a very high 
rate of using condoms and birth control. And they note a very high rate of self-efficacy where they feel they can make decisions about their sexual life. And so what we think this comes from is that the culture in the Netherlands is much more of a normalization culture around sex. So teens talk to their parents a lot about their decisions and relationships are normalized. They're taught that love is very common and it's accessible to teenagers and how to have conversations with your partner. And so I think this leads to adolescents and women feeling that they can assert their needs in the private space, which is often where we first start to negotiate how we feel about ourselves and asking for what we want and setting boundaries. So I try to provide the space as much as possible with my women and my my young people and my patients in general. And so I'll just end kind of this question with, I had a, a patient in my very early training days in the abortion setting tell me that she was so happy that her providers were so nice because she came in expecting to be judged and she was pleasantly surprised that we were all so nice to her. And so this experience just always stayed with me that a woman had come in expecting, already expecting to be judged for her life decisions and that if we can just provide care for her that's really safe, high quality, and compassionate above all, that that is really radical. Well, I think that's great. I especially loved your quote that we are all just one step away from being a vulnerable population or part of a vulnerable, vulnerable population. Like we said, today we're going to discuss what it would mean to have a single-payer insurance system. And we understand that insurance and woman-centered health communication may not be an obvious link, but if you'd listen to our podcast with Dr. Jackie Abdallah, patients' insurance, or lack thereof, certainly impacted the type of care that she could practice, including prescriptions and services that women had access to. So insurance is something that at a systems level impacts how providers can practice at the individual level, and Stephanie and I both believe that women-centered care and communication not only occurs at the individual level, but also at the systems level. So let's jump in and discuss this more with Dr. Wonderville. And we will preface that some questions are asked to be devil's advocate, so to speak. We just wanted to make sure that we wanted to have a well-rounded approach to such a topic that really is fraught with a lot of controversy. So first of all, can you First, explain what type of advocacy work you are involved with surrounding insurance, the ACA, or the single-payer system. Yes, definitely. So my work started really after the election of 2016, and that was kind of when the whole discussion became across the nation about to keep the ACA or to not. And so a group of residents, including myself, got together and really thought about how we could advocate on behalf of our patients to keep the ACA. Now, we work in a safety net hospital, so no matter what, we are able to care for our patients regardless of insurance status. And we also live in San Francisco where we actually have a public city insurance that anybody can get. But we were mainly doing this thinking about all the people across the the nation that were going to lose their insurance. And so we staged town halls, walkouts, we organized physicians and students to wear their white coats and go to the Women's March and various other marches. So that was sort of my first venture into organizing among physicians. And so it really got me thinking about just the power that physicians have and that we're used to advocating on a one-on-one level with our patients, but where, where do our other power of advocacy lie? So how often are we getting out there in our white coats and how often are we speaking and facing the media? And so I really was 
very rewarded by the experiences that I had and just the positive amount of feedback that I got from fellow residents that were really excited to feel that they were finally engaging with larger systems issues and really advocating on a bigger scale. So then I thought about, well, is the ACA really what I want to be dedicating so much time to? There are a lot of great things about the ACA. It controls costs. It helps to expand Medicaid and expand so many, so much more coverage for people. But if I really kind of sat and thought about what would be the best system that I would want to be in as a provider and a patient, it would be a system where it was low cost, everybody was covered. I didn't have a list of doctors I had to choose from. I could go anywhere and I didn't have to worry about if my insurance was going to cover something that my doctor wanted. So I also thought about how can I use my leverage as a physician in a very progressive place to really push the conversation forward. And I think when it comes to at least the advocacy that I do, I wanted to work on single payer because I really see it as the future. I think the AC is great. I think we shouldn't roll it back yet. But I do think that given how broken our system is, we we need to dream big. We need to really think about big solutions for these problems. And so I started to work with the organization Physicians for a National Health Program. And they're a national organization of about 20,000 doctors, nurses, and other health professionals who conduct research. They do local organizing. They do national organizing. And it's all about single payer. So the local chapter in San Francisco, we focus on the Senate Bill 562, which is California's bill for single payer. And so we do all sorts of things. We do tabling, we do phone banking, we've met with assemblymen. We also work particularly with students. And that's my particular role, actually, is I work with organizing a lot of the young doctors. So I work with students at Berkeley and UCSF, and I help them with their advocacy skills, because I really want to get them to think about how can they, in addition to working with patients, how can they also use their experiences and patient stories to advocate on a larger level? And so, for example, just this past year, we did a writing for change workshop where we had a published physician author come in and do workshopping with them around how to write an op-ed. They submitted letters to the editor, how to submit a resolution to an, a physician organization or an institution in support of single payer. They also started a student chapter for Physicians for a National Health Program. And we've also gotten them to interface with politicians. And so it's really about getting their feet wet with advocacy and kind of seeing where their strengths lie. And in addition to pushing single payer, but really just mobilizing the younger physician pool to become engaged. So great. Thank you for your background about your advocacy work. So you talked about this, you know, advocating for a single payer insurance system. Why do you think a single payer insurance insurance system is best? Yeah, well, right now, what we have essentially is not working. So at the most basic level in the US, what we spend per capita is even just on our public systems, Medicaid, Medicare is way more than what other OECD nations spend on healthcare per capita total. So that doesn't even include what we spend for private expenditures on healthcare. So 
we're spending so much money and our outcomes are terrible. So you would expect for all of this money that we're pouring into healthcare that we would have the best maternal mortality, the longest life expectancy. And the data just shows that that's not true. We're the worst when it comes to maternal mortality. And that's actually been getting worse over the last two decades. So we're actually double that of the UK and we have the shortest life expectancy. And so even when you account for things like smoking, for the share of patients that are elderly, it still doesn't account for these differences. And compared to other OECD countries, we actually have the lowest smoking rate, the smallest amount of the smallest share of patients that are elderly, the lowest amount of inpatient hospital stays. So it really comes down to our fragmented system of healthcare. It's a lot more money for us, just the cost of doing business, our pharmaceutical prices. It's a basically a laundry list of reasons why our healthcare system is so expensive and why it does not translate to the outcomes that we want. But if we're talking about what other countries have and trying to be more outcome-based and not profit-driven, we really need to go to a system that is all about coverage, access, affordability, and evidence. And a single-payer system is all of these things. So it makes ethical sense from a standpoint of you are covering everybody. You're covering everybody regardless of if you've just lost your job, if you have the highest income bracket or the lowest income bracket, if you know you have uh, citizenship or not. And so at its most basic core, it's the most humane and ethical insurance plan. But from a financial standpoint, it also makes a lot of sense because it would allow us to consolidate all of the hundreds of insurance companies that we have and the costs associated with doing business across of all of those companies. And so there's actually a great study out of the University of Massachusetts Amherst that reviews California's Senate Bill 562. And they talk about the financing of it where, yes, it would cost more money upfront and overall taxes would increase. But if we actually spent the money that we already use for funding our health insurance, and then we have that tax money, it would actually end up resulting in more money in the pockets of American families. And this is because when we have these taxes and we already have the money that we are already using from the federal government, then you eliminate cost sharing. So patients no longer have to worry about deductibles. They don't have to worry about co-pays. And so it's already packaged. They're already enrolled. And doctors don't have to spend all the time that they spend billing and doing all of these prior authorizations because it's just one company. It's the government paying a private company to administer all healthcare for every American. And so you would have a lot of people that would end up being covered, whereas right now we have a system where Americans are five times more likely to skip their recommended treatment or medication rather than the UK because it's just too expensive. It's too costly. So the system that we have right now costs a lot of money and expenditures, but patients are also having to bear a huge burden of their out-of-pocket costs, and they're even still not going to the doctors because of these costs. So we need a solution. So your answer definitely sparks a lot of different topics that we can stem from. So first, I want to start with the beginning part. You talked about how a single payer system is most humane. So in what ways do you think that the single payer insurance system promotes a woman centered care or would benefit women? That's a great question. Well, when you talk about all of these benefits, these health benefits, it obviously includes women. We're a huge share of the population. 
for me, I'm most specifically passionate about family planning and supporting the decisions that women make for themselves about when they want to start a family, when it's right for them. And so specifically for women, we have so much evidence that actually when we support their decisions around family planning, the state saves money. So we need to invest in a system that covers their decisions. And so single payer would do this. And so specifically, if we look at healthcare reforms from the mid 90s, for example, across the nation, states were given permission to expand Medicaid in various areas if they wanted to. So a lot of states chose to use that waiver to expand their family planning. So California, for example, saved $2.2 billion in the five years just when they decided to cover family planning services. And that all came from the prevention of unintended pregnancy. So every dollar that they spent on the program saved them $5.33 in the long run. So the money that we save, I hate to put it in financial terms all of the time because I think we should cover the uterus just like we cover every other part of the body. But when we talk about family planning in particular and, and supporting women's decisions, Financially, it makes sense. So, and it goes back to so many other health topics where when we talk about really investing in an insurance company that prioritizes primary care and covering these upfront costs that it takes to keep people healthy, to keep women healthy, to support their family planning decisions, it makes financial sense to protect all of that money that we would ultimately be spending later on down the road when it comes to unintended pregnancies, emergency room visits. So it, it's really an investment in our health. Okay, so Dr. Lunderville, you mentioned earlier when you were speaking about the single payer system, how it would benefit providers and that they wouldn't have to worry about sort of figuring out access and billing and those type of things. How else would a single payer system benefit providers in other ways? And what would those be? I think I mentioned that they would cut down the the time that it would take filling out forms. And just to expand on that a little bit, just because I feel like this area is so personal to me as a resident, to quote Steve Jobs, he says, the most precious resource that we all have is time. So I, I completely agree with this, that if we can save our time, it means more time that we get to spend with patients. So a recent paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine cited that for every hour of patient care, a physician has two hours of paperwork and documentation. So how many of us applied to medical school and put on our personal statement that we had a burning passion for filling out forms? I don't think any of us did. At least I hope none of us did. <laughs> and I think most of us went into medicine because we had some reward from working with patients face to face. And so I think that a single payer system, I know that a single payer system would get us back to that passion that we all had going into medicine. And anecdotally, as someone who's graduating from a primary care program, and a lot of my colleagues are not choosing to do primary care full time. And a huge part of this is burden of documentation and filling out forms. That's a part of primary care. So I think that going to a single payer system could really help with physician burnout. And when we look at our numbers of provider satisfaction in the U.S. compared to other countries, similar developed countries, our provider satisfaction is one of the lowest. And so I think this has a lot to do with it. And a lot of providers also bring up the question of, is my wage going to change? And I think that's a great consideration. We spent a lot of money in medical school. We deferred a regular income for many years. And what we know right now is that we're not completely sure how the wages will 
where the incomes will settle out. But we know that for a system similar to ours, like Canada, actually their primary doctors earn more than we do right now. So because they've invested so much in primary care, their workforce for primary care has expanded. And actually their average salary for 2014 to 2015 of a primary care physician in Canada is about 271000 And ours during those same years was about 195000 So I think there is actually evidence to say that our salaries might actually increase, especially for primary care. Interesting. Kind of sticking with the benefits of different uh, stakeholders within a single payer insurance. In what ways, and again, you also kind of touched on this with that initial question, is how would a single payer system benefit taxpayers? Could you expand on that a little bit more as well? Yes. So as I mentioned right now, as it is, we are already spending more than what other countries spend. And so if you look at that University of Massachusetts analysis that was done on SB 562, actually the money that we're already currently spending on healthcare for California would cover a single payer system. Not to mention that we would also get money from taxes to cover the initial fees to set up and roll everyone over to the system. So in the end, you would cut costs specifically because you would be able to cut down on all those administrative costs. You would no longer need all of those people in the hospital, in clinics that are dedicated to medical billing. So there's actually money in the bill and most single payer bills that go to retraining that workforce so that they can be involved with other things that are more geared towards the patient experience. Other things that taxpayers would get to experience would be the bargaining power that comes from being the sole purchaser of insurance. So as of right now, your prices for drugs and devices are determined by the negotiations that go on between your insurance company and pharma. So essentially, the patients have no bargaining power. If we were to go to a single-payer system, all of us are represented by one group. We are the sole buyer of those drugs and those products. So Therefore, there's immense negotiating power that takes the power out of the insurance companies to set prices. So even just from the negotiating power that, sh- that comes from being a huge block can open access and reduce the price of drugs and devices overall. So there's a lot of specifics about how it would drive costs down. And it's kind of all broken down by basically taking out the insurance company as the mediator of the one that sets all these prices. And really, their motivation is their bottom line. And it's not a bad thing. They're a private company. That's how they're expected to run. They have shareholders, their business. But when you're talking about something that's inherently ethical, like healthcare, that you cannot have your bottom line as the sole driver of how you make your decisions. It really needs to be patient care. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I think that this is very enlightening. And before we kind of switch gears to kind of more of the devil advocacy piece, is there anything else that you want to talk about as far as the benefits of a single payer system? I think I covered a lot of it. I think the main take home message for me as a provider, at least And even as a patient, that a lot of us think we're protected because we have insurance or maybe we don't have insurance, but we're young and healthy. And we don't realize that if we got sick, just like so many of my patients, we wouldn't have health insurance anymore because we couldn't work. And so nobody should have to bear that burden of if I get sick, I'm going to lose my health insurance. We should all be taken care of no matter what. 
So I think what you just said really extends into the next question, which is kind of our double advocacy piece in that, you know, this taking care of the other person or the healthy taking care of the sick and how that works out. And so some liken the single payer system to socialist medicine. What are your thoughts on this perspective? Well, socialist medicine, if we just talk about logistically, a lot of the words socialist medicine and single payer get thrown around and conflated. And really, socialist medicine is very different. It's actually when the government owns the hospital, they employ the doctors, and they really own every facet of the healthcare delivery system. So we actually already have socialist medicine in the US, and it's the VA system, the Veterans Administration, which services all the U.S. veterans. And so socialist medicine is also what the U.K. has. And there's a great review in the Washington Post by Ezra Klein, and he breaks down how socialist medicine is thrown around in the U.S., but how he's, quote, literally never heard anyone propose socialized medicine in the U.S., and he hangs out with a lot of liberals, end quote. So it's because we, as a society, have never really actually seriously considered socialized medicine. But single payer actually specifically just refers to the market share. So single payer means that there's one provider of medical care. So in the case of the Senate Bill 562 in California and Bernie's Healthcare for All, these single payer bills would be where everybody pays the government through taxes and then the government issues all this money out to private firms to administer healthcare. So that's the single payer system we're proposing. But single payer could also be, say, for example, Blue Cross had a hundred percent market share. Everybody paid Blue Cross and Blue Cross administered all the healthcare. That would also be a single payer system. Okay, so I might have you dissect that a little bit more. So when you say uh, Blue Cross or, you know, if a true socialist medicine would be where the government makes these decisions. And I think that a lot of what this comes down to is a lot of people do think that, well, then all the doctors are going to be government employees and the government's going to be the one who makes all the decisions on the care that is either delivered or received. And so I just, can you maybe expand a little bit more about who then is quote unquote employing the doctors? Who is there this third party then that would have the potential to influence what doctors can and can't do or gatekeep what services patients can or cannot get? Right. That's a great distinction. So in the single payer system, as it would be proposed in the U.S., for example, SB 562, the determination of coverage would be actually by a panel of physicians, pharmacists, nurses, health policy analysts, PhDs, and lawyers, but also administrators. But the main composition of these panels would actually be clinicians. So as opposed to the way insurance companies run right now, they mainly have administrators who are determining what should be covered, people involved in the business side determining what should be covered. And they do follow FDA guidelines. They do look at evidence, but a lot of it is determined by cost analysis. And so when you go to a single-payer system, and I'm not talking about the system where if we had Blue Cross administering everything, I'm talking about where everybody pays the government and then the government pays a company to administer care. And they would pay various companies. So they could pay Kaiser. Kaiser would still exist. They would pay Blue Cross. Blue Cross would still exist. But instead of all of these companies receiving payments from employers or COBRA or the various places that they receive payment now, they would just be receiving payment from the government. 
So the doctors would then be employed by whatever company, Kaiser or whatever company that they're currently working for. But instead of the money coming from all these payees, they would be coming from the government. Okay, so that makes sense. So then the next question I have is if you have this panel of people making decisions, and I know that this is something that comes up with Canadian care is wait times for especially for specialists. So if you have this panel making this decision, is this going to impact the time it takes for a patient to see a specialist? Or again, is there that gatekeeping function? And what role would that have? That's a great question. And I think that's still something that is not entirely worked out. And no healthcare system is perfect. So for example, in Canada, you're right, they do have longer wait times for certain procedures. So they have made the decision to be fiscally conservative, essentially. And so as they've looked at their costs, they're very conservative in so far that they have actually put limits on various elective procedures. So they're, while they're medically indicated, they're procedures that someone will not suffer undue harm if they have to wait a little bit longer. So an example is a hip replacement in Canada. So they've set a limit for the number of hip replacements that can be done every year. But it's not a function of their single-payer system. It's a function of how much money they've set for themselves to save. And so if they wanted to lower those wait times, if they wanted to really expedite all those people going in for elective surgeries, they could, but it would require putting a little bit more money in the system. And so another thing to think about for Canada's system is that there is a portion of the government there that want to privatize, that want to come out with more insurance companies that are private and can offer patients out-of-pocket care. And so one of their institutes there. It's called the Fraser Institute. They put out a lot of this research on patient wait times. And they're actually a right-wing conservative organization that actually oftentimes misrepresents these numbers because they're trying to privatize. They're trying to get more private insurance companies in that market, even American companies. So you always have to be a little bit weary of where these numbers are coming from for the Canada system. And there's actually been lots of studies on these myths because there's a huge myth that Canada leaves to come to the U.S. to get certain care. And we've done a lot of research on the receiving hospitals where Canadians go, near the border, the top 10 medical systems. And it really shows that per year they take a few Canadian patients. It is not overwhelming. So a lot of these myths are actually, I think there are obviously some truth to it because they do do limits on some of their procedures. But a lot of it is also some pushing of agenda of privatizing in Canada. So it's it's a balance when you statistics. So you had mentioned elective surgeries. And for women, maybe that includes a breast augmentation, vagioplasty, whatever that may be. How do those types of elective surgeries fit into a single payer system? That's also a really great question, especially for gender confirming surgeries and these surgeries that while physicians will agree that they're needed and medically indicated, that it's kind of a new area that we're still determining what should be included and what shouldn't be included. And actually right now, in most of the bills that exist for single payer, there's not an exact list of procedures that are covered quite yet. And I think this has a large implication for women, especially because when it comes to services like abortion, it's assumed to be covered under the byline that says outpatient medical services and aftercare procedures. But 
it's not explicit. And so I think as single payer goes through committees and has amendments made, there needs to be a push for us to say, these things should be included, that they're protected, they're covered. Because I think as single payer, if it were to get rolled out, these might actually be sticking points where various parties would say, okay, we can we can agree on single payer, but we're not going to include abortion or we're not going to confirm a vaginoplasty or things like that. So I do think that as advocates in the movement, we need to pay very close attention and be sure that these things are covered. You mentioned Ezra Klein earlier, and he wrote a piece several years ago about the Hobby Lobby decision, kind of getting back to what you're saying about, you know, these panels making these decisions. So the Hobby Lobby not covering certain contraception for their employees in their insurance. And in a single payer, we would hope that, you know, that wouldn't be an issue. So that could be sort of a pro to single payer. On the other hand, I think what he was saying was that you could also sort of have the government making these policy decisions. So like right now, we have Republicans in control. So maybe they would all decide IUDs are not going to be covered anymore in a single payer system. Taxpayers are not going to fund that. Is that something that you sort of address in your advocacy work at all? I do, actually. I tend to be the only female in these rooms. And so, especially as someone from a family planning perspective, I advocate for, we need to put the coverage of contraception in these bills. We need to put abortion. So kind of as I alluded to before, I think including these specifications is really important. And also, you know, whenever we talk about policy and implementation, it's really important to make sure that when we establish these laws, that the governing bodies that provide oversight and accountability are actually very strong because ideally the system that we would set up would be based on evidence. And we know there's lots of evidence for abortion doesn't cause PTSD. It is, you know, prevents long-term unwanted pregnancy and contraception has lots of evidence for the use of it, for its efficacy. And so really there should be no argument about if it's evidence-based or not. And so you would hope that the argument would just come back to this is a needed medical service or device. And so there's nothing that is harmful about it, at least in the ways that we regulate it. And so it needs to be covered under single payer. But I do think that that is a huge concern that I have when we talk about the passage of single payer, because I think that women's services above services in general are highly politicized. And so this is a huge part of my advocacy work in trying to make it explicit in the bill and to always talk about it and say, yes, we need a single payer, but we also need to make sure that we include these things in the rollout of the insurance plan. Because I think I can definitely see this being something that Republicans or conservatives will make a point of taking out, and that would be fatal. So in addition to, you know, the controversy that may surround paying for gender reassignment surgeries or abortions, some taxpayers believe that we shouldn't be paying for, for health care for illegal or undocumented people. And so I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on this and, and how do you approach that discussion? Yeah, this is a great discussion. I think it goes back to basic human rights when we discuss if we think people from other countries without documentation should be allowed to live here and work here. And I think the bottom line is that 
they're here. They're a huge part of our economy, whether people like it or not. And I think that if we're talking about one, their contribution to our economy, I like to quote economist John Price, um, who says in his book, Illegal Immigrants, excluding the positive economic impact of undocumented migrant wages from the equation is like declaring the 8.1 billion hours of free service by America's 61 million volunteers as economically irrelevant. So I just like to point out that undocumented immigrants contribute a huge contribution to our economy, to our communities, to our vibrancy of American diversity. And so I think from a human rights perspective, if we look to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948, Article 25 also states that everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and his family. And so, again, humanely the right thing to do. No one should be punished with poor health because they crossed a border. Immigration policy is immigration policy. It's not health policy. And so as far as I'm concerned, I don't think that it's right to exclude people from receiving primary care who are here contributing to our economy, working for our businesses, and contributing to sales tax and in many other ways. And then as well, on the back end, you know, from policy perspective, we do have laws that require us to take care of people that are at end of life and very sick. And our law, MTALA, requires that, you know, we see patients presenting to the emergency room, and especially if they have threat to life or limb, we have to take care of them. And so, you know, we can either make the decision to invest in primary care and invest in families, whatever reason they're here, or we're going to take care of them when they're at the end of life and they're really sick. And that's when that's where actually where most of our medical care, um, where the money goes is the last four years of life. So during this entire talk today, you spoke a lot of, about a lot of myths that people hold about a single payer system, some of them like cost to taxpayers, wait times, burden on providers or salary for providers. Are there any other common myths that you've heard about single payer systems and how do you dispel those myths? Yes, great. There's a couple of other myths that actually come to mind. One myth is that the private sector administers healthcare better than the public sector. And to this, I would say that actually, if we look at in the US, and this actually remains true for other OECD countries that have public and private, private companies who administer health insurance, actually, their overhead costs are triple that of the public sector. And so when we have countries that go from private to public, we know that their cost of doing business goes down. So at least in terms of cost and management, public, we have lots of evidence that public does it better. I wanted to also discuss the other myth that I think some of us learn in our economics class is the theory of moral hazard, which is that if people don't have cost sharing mechanisms, that they will tend to overuse services that cost money. So for example, in something like single payer, we wouldn't have deductibles or co-pays. And so there's a fear that patients would be over-accessing the emergency room, over-accessing primary care appointments. And so there's really nothing to say that this may or may not happen. But we do know if we look at other systems that went to a single-payer system, like Canada, for example, in the first year that they went to single-payer, they actually polled the physicians about the type of complaints that they were getting. And what they found was that most of the complaints that 
they were reporting to physicians were what physicians called very serious complaints. So what we actually saw was that when people went to single payer, they actually reported things that they were not reporting before that were completely appropriate. And so I think this actually points to that a system that we have that doesn't cover everybody and doesn't address barriers will keep people, particularly middle class and poor people, away from the doctor when they should be going. So yes, you'll get some people that are going just because they want to go and they probably wouldn't go if they had a copay. But the bigger point is that we would actually get people that are appropriate, that needed to go and they just weren't doing it. And we know that in the US, like I said before, Americans are five times more likely not to go to their doctor's appointments, to miss a treatment or not get a procedure that their doctor recommended to them because of the money. I always think it's sort of funny that people think that the majority of people would overuse health insurance. It's like as a provider, it's really difficult sometimes to get your patient to come in to see the doctor in the office. And, you know, people are busy. We have lives, you know, even the cliche that trying to get your husband to go see the doctor, you have to like coax them. So I think that for the most part, there are going to be some people that maybe overuse. I know Nicole has an example of that from her practice. But I think for the most part, people don't really want to go to the doctor if they don't need to. And I guess a follow up to, I think that the people are typically called quote unquote frequent flyers. I know that some other countries who have single payer systems do sort of have a check and balance for the quote unquote frequent flyer. And I'm, I'm wondering if within the California bill that you talk about, or even in general, is there... I don't know how to phrase this, any sort of discussion or a piece that is specifically to address, quote unquote, the frequent flyer? I don't believe that there is. I think that we could look to other models to see what works. I'm not familiar with current policy that's in place that helps with that. I think that I know anecdotally in Spain, I have a friend who went to see the doctor probably three times in a month because she was just overly concerned about something. I would probably categorize her in the worried well category, but she said that it was no problem for her to get in and see her doctor. If anything, it just helped her to feel reassured that if she had to go back, that there was someone that would be available to see her. And there's not a stigmatization of going in more than maybe you need to at a certain time of the year. Or I think if anything, single payer would not necessarily encourage that, but wouldn't want to create barriers for someone that thought that that was what was needed at that time. So I think that's probably an area that does need to be researched a little bit more and we can look at models in other countries. And if it ends up being a problem where we identify a certain group of people, like you said, that are high utilizers, how can we, I know at my hospital, we have a program, ED case management and various outreach teams that target high utilizers, because oftentimes those are patients that need more social support or they have social work needs. And so I think we still need a lot of work in terms of if we were to get single payer and it rolled out, there would probably be a certain number of patients who would benefit from more intense social work or case management that we could prevent them from going into the doctor so much if if we felt that it was for other reasons that they just needed a little bit more support. Well, and I think you bring up a great point that it's really easy for us to say, oh, this patient's non-compliant. Oh, this patient's a frequent flyer. But really, we need to take a step back and say, 
Why are they quote unquote non-compliant? Why are they quote unquote a frequent flyer? And so I think that that you make that point very clear that that's something that we need to think about. And, and again, you might not catch or, you know, address all the reasons why someone may be, but there probably is some very important social underlying structures that are impacting like when and if people are coming in and how frequently. Right. I think that even if we're in a single payer system, we still need to look at, you know, are people accessing outpatient visits appropriately? Are they accessing the emergency room appropriately? Or do we need to do more education on this is an emergency room complaint? This is something that can wait for urgent care, or this is something that can wait for your outpatient doctor. So I still think that there's a lot of work that remains to be done in that area for for optimizing access. Mm -hmm. I think I read something out of a Boston hospital, and I think our program is actually modeled after that one because we have a high share of our patients that are high utilizers, and it mainly is driven from social factors. I think when we go to single payer, if we do, that's a huge part that we need to invest in because, you know, healthcare isn't going to solve all of those social problems and the inequality. So when you talk about these high utilizers, how does a social services, social workers, how does that fit into a single payer system and making sure that patients are also getting the care that they need once they leave the hospital? Yes. So single payer system would include ancillary services, social workers, case managers. And I think it would very much depend on area specific needs. And I think that single payer right now includes the provision of those services. But when I'm thinking about my hospital in particular, I think that there needs to be a lot of room for having particular hospitals be able to determine how to spend that money. Because I think some areas are going to need maybe a little bit more case management and to use it in a different way to support homelessness or whatever it may be. So I think that if we can involve a pretty large share of local sovereignty or local control over that particular money, then that would be ideal. As of right now, there there isn't any provision specifically for how hospitals or companies can use those services specifically, but it does provide for those services in general. So we usually like to sum up by providing our listeners with some tips about improving their communication. In this case, I think we would like to see what tips you have if providers want to become advocates for the single payer insurance system. Great. If I could turn just one doctor into an advocate for single payer, my job would be done. Well, First off, I would say for anyone who's even just a little bit interested in single payer that I would really recommend just doing a little bit of reading and research and really just saying that you don't have to be a health policy expert. You don't have to have every fact and figure memorized. But I think really understanding the main parts of single payer and to talk to other physicians and other providers about that universal healthcare is not such a pipe dream and it's gaining a lot of traction. And so I think a great place to actually start off would be pnhp.org. They have a lot of great articles that summarize some of the main fiscal points, some of the main comparison to other single payer bills and to the ACA. And so I think take a look for it yourself and see what you think. And if you have a few minutes or a few hours in a week, 
email those articles to some colleagues, even just talk about it with your colleagues at lunch, ask what they know, ask if they've heard anything. And I think that physicians have an enormous network. I mean, health professionals in general, nurses, therapists, they have huge networks based on where they went to school and where they work and their patient networks. And I really encourage physicians to use that network. So if you're on social media, post a video. Healthy California Campaign is one of the members in our coalition, and they do so much great work. They do a great media campaign. There's these videos on there. They're about three minutes long, and they're in a schoolhouse rock style. And they really just go over the main parts of single payer. And so if you want to just share that, it's a great way to expose it to other people. And so Another part of advocacy is that we're all so busy, especially as health professionals. And I think just think about how much time you have to offer and be realistic. If you have an hour or if you have three hours, that's going to determine what you do. So on pnhp.org, we actually have a list of ways to get involved. One of them is, you know, a template for how to write an op-ed or a letter to the editor which is great. And there's other ways to be more involved. If you're a little bit more ambitious, you can host an informational night, have some friends over, have some wine, look at the links, watch some videos and make a fun night out of it. I think that advocacy is obviously very serious work, but I think it's also a great outlet for health professionals to connect with other people, to tell stories that can improve access for people and highlight patient stories. And so I just really hope that physicians can reignite why they got into medicine. And I think advocacy can provide a lot of fun and a great outlet for for physicians who have a lot on their plate right now. And so I just hope to expose a couple more health professionals to how fun and rewarding advocacy can be. Great. Usually kind of what we also do at the end besides the tips is, is there any last thoughts, ideas, or things that you want to talk about before we end the podcast? I would just encourage anyone who is a health professional to push themselves to be a little bit more forward-facing than they were when they started their career, to engage with the media to post a a patient story, no identifiers, of course, on social media, and to really know that they have so much power to tell patient stories. And that's really where I think the money is, is patient stories. If you can just find a way, if you want to be an advocate, to highlight your patient stories, people will listen to you. And that's really my main message. Well, I know one way that people can share their stories is PRH, the Physicians for Reproductive Health, especially if you follow them on Twitter and Facebook. Every day since election, they have released uh, tidbits of little stories of that I think women or providers or researchers can submit. But a lot of the stories have to do with access to care. And, you know, if someone would or wouldn't have had access to, say, abortions or birth control, or how clinics like Planned Parenthood changed the trajectory of their lives by offering something that they wouldn't have gotten somewhere else. And so I think that even if you as a provider have stories that you could share like that, uh, they have a really easy tab within their website where you can submit your stories. Exactly. I think that for all of the statistics and how health policy can be so complex, I think if you ever have any trouble with figuring out what to say or how to advocate, it really comes back to sharing your patient stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I agree. I think that stories really make a big difference. I've had a few situations where uh, my research was qualitative in nature 
And one of my patients did have an abortion because the alternative was that her boyfriend or partner was going to throw her down the stairs if she became pregnant. And that's something that really, when I talk to someone who's against abortion, makes them think. And I say, what is she supposed to do in that situation? And so I think when you Mm -hmm. have real life stories, tangible stories that actually happen, it puts it in context. And I think it makes it real for people. Exactly. It's one thing to talk about how much money you'll save. And then it's another to talk about, yeah, your patient who lives in fear over having an abortion. So yeah, I think as much as we can do that as health professionals, it's our duty. Yes. So Nicole and I would both like to thank you so much for your time today and speaking with us and in your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through your advocacy work. Did you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end today? No, just thank you for, for providing the space and the platform. This is um, amazing. Thank you. We're excited about it too. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Are you looking for ways to support us? Check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. And that's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And subscribe so that you can help us keep the show going while getting awesome extras. Want to be a part of the show? Go to our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com and send us an email. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and Facebook. <music>